I greet you again this morning. Thank you for the privilege of being able to um, preach God's word to this congregation of people. If you look up on the screens, you'll see those words in it, not of it. That actually are words that come from the prayer of Jesus. Just before he died, on the same night in which he gave us the, um, the, the Lord's Supper, uh, Jesus also gave us a prayer. It's called the High Priestly Prayer. It's probably Jesus, the Lord's real prayer. And one of the things he prays for for his followers is that we would be in the world. He says, I don't want you to form little separate communities. I don't want you to cloister yourselves. I don't want you to, to put your heads in the sand. I don't want you to try to insulate yourselves from the culture. Be in the culture. But there's some of the, the ways of the culture, some of the values of the culture. I don't want you to take those on. Be in it, but not of it. That's his great um, his great desire for his followers. Now, there's probably no one that did that much better than the man named Daniel. Daniel, of course, lived way before Jesus, 600 years before the time of Jesus, but here was a man who was kidnapped from his country as a young man, probably 15 years of age, taken to another country, educated in the arts and the sciences and the religion of this other country. He was to be brainwashed, but it didn't work. He was fully immersed in the Babylonian culture, and yet he didn't take on the Babylonian values. He remained in Babylon, but as a representative of Jesus and rose to the highest possible positions, the prime ministership of several different empires. So uh, Daniel's a remarkable person. Last week, we turned to a passage of scripture in which the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, who we know from history is one of the greatest leaders that's ever existed on planet Earth, Nebuchadnezzar the king has a dream and his dream is frightening to him. And back in that society, as well as societies today, many people who have dreams are frightened by them. Many people in ancient times, modern times, to this very day, believe that dreams have some significance. Nebuchadnezzar thought that. He had a very frightening dream, but guess what? He forgot what his dream was. So he decided he was going to call in his wise guys. You know, all the people who were trained to be counselors to the king. They were supposed to be well-studied in all the arts and magic, and they even had contact with the gods. And so he called them in, and he said, here's the deal. I want you guys to interpret my dream. And they go, great, we know how to do that. They were skilled in that. They had taken classes in interpreting dreams. But he said, uh, there's a little catch. I forgot my dream. So here's, what, here's the deal. You guys not only have to interpret my dream, you've got to tell me what my dream was. They go, wait a minute. We can't do that. Nobody can do that. Nebuchadnezzar said, oh, you can't? I'm going to kill every one of you. And that includes Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're all dead meat. So now the king sent out his leaders to kill all the wise men because he knew that these wise men, they don't really know what they're talking about. They're making this stuff up. And Daniel's about to die. But Daniel prays to God and he asks for an audience with the king and he says, oh king, I'm no more capable than any other wise man, but there is a God in heaven who does Reveal dreams. If you give me a little time, I'm not stalling. If you give me a little time, I will tell you what your dream was. Not because I can do it, but because God will reveal it. 
So Daniel went home, got his three friends together. They, they must have fallen right on their faces and prayed to God. And that night, God told Daniel what Nebuchadnezzar had dreamed and the interpretation of the dream. That was last week. So this week, we're going to look at what the dream was because now Daniel is going to tell the king about his dream and he's going to interpret it for him. Now, we have an expression in our society. We say, hindsight is 2020. If you look back at events, like you say you really messed up on something, and we all do that. You say, if I had only done this and this and this differently, it wouldn't have happened. Or we look at historical events that have gone horribly wrong, and we say, this is where we messed up. 2020 hindsight is really clear. Here's a, <laughs> that's a skateboard he's on. <laughs> he said, hey, I can go down these stairs on my skateboard. Yeah. With 2020 hindsight, he's never going to try that again. See, that's kind of a dumb idea. And so he, he learned foresight needs context. It says, these are hindsight glasses. If only we had some. 2020 hindsight. Yeah, that's pretty good. Um, here's a chart to see how good your hindsight is. Hindsight is 2020. But what would you do if somebody had 2020 <coughs> foresight? Some of you are alive. In fact, all of you are alive in 2008. I was. In around 2006, 2007, things were going on in our country, and we were all being told, if you turned on the news almost any night, that uh, our, our, our economy is, is not really good. It's built on a lot of hot air. And, and the stock market is overpriced by a lot. Now, I don't know if you, I heard that all the time. And so what did I do? Yeah, same as you, nothing. I did nothing until the Great Recession of 2008 hit. And everything I had saved to that point in my life 40% of it was wiped out. What did I do? Nothing. But the warnings, we had heard the warnings. We did nothing. Why? We figured, ah, it's not going to happen, but it did. If you were alive back at the time of Daniel, this is what you would have heard. You would have been in the country of Judah, and you would have heard this, this strange bird. His name was Jeremiah. And this Jeremiah was a hated guy. They hated this guy because he never told them good news. And by the way, one of the greatest um, um, definitions of a prophet is somebody who speaks the truth to power. But powerful people don't surround themselves with truth tellers. Powerful people surround themselves with yes men and yes women. But, Dan but Jeremiah was not one of the yes men. He was a true prophet of God. But the kings of Judah had surrounded themselves with false prophets. And the false prophets were saying, King, never worry, because we're God's chosen people. We have the temple in Jerusalem. We have the Holy of Holies. We are on God's side, and God is on our side, and we're always safe. And here you had this rumdum named Jeremiah saying, They're all wrong. Our sin has caused us, in God's eyes, to be a people who are going to be judged. And the hand of God's judgment is going to fall, and it's going to fall through the Babylonian leaders. Here's my advice to you, said Jeremiah. Surrender right now. 
Okay, what would happen if, let's say, Russia was, over, was about ready to descend on the United States and crush us and change and, and, and defeat us? And some guy who claims to speak for God came around and said, here's my news to you Americans, my fellow Americans, surrender right now. And if you surrender right now, you will save your lives. If you do not surrender, you'll get slaughtered. Now, what would you think of such a person? Would you follow them? No, you wouldn't. You'd call them a traitor. That's exactly what they called Jeremiah. But Jeremiah was the one who was right. And because they did not listen to Jeremiah, who was giving them 20-20 foresight, they followed the false prophets and they got slaughtered by the tens and hundreds of thousands. Jeremiah was trying to save their lives because God wanted their lives spared. He was not going to change his judgment. They were going to go into captivity, but because they didn't listen to the true prophet, they were slaughtered. Now Daniel is going to be the one who's going to be given by God 2020 foresight. The question is, will they listen to him? So today, if you have a Bible, look with me at Daniel chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 31 to 49, which I titled 2020 foresight. It begins with Daniel saying to the king that this is what is going to happen in the days to come. Here's how the Bible reads. The king, that's Nebuchadnezzar, asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? So there's this very simple question. The answer is no. No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you lay on your bed are these. As you were lying there, O king, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because I have greater wisdom than any other living men, but so that you, O king, may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. So that's the setup. Daniel said he disavows any special knowledge. He said, oh, king, I can't do this because I'm better or smarter or wiser than any of you other wise men. That is not the reason. I stand before you as one who has been given revelation by God. This does not come from me. And so now the king is going to be told by Daniel what he had dreamed and then the interpretation. Here's his dream. You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. 
while you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not with human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, and the silver and gold were broken into pieces at the same time and became like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain that filled the whole earth. Now, there's his dream. Just look at what Daniel has told him. This is how Nebuchadnezzar, while sleeping, he saw this image, the head. As you know, the head, of course, is the most important part of our body. It stands for leadership and intelligence. And in this particular dream that Nebuchadnezzar received, the head was made of pure gold. Then you had the, the chest portion. The chest, that's the heart. And that's where the two arms are. And then there was the, the central portion, the core, if you will. And the thighs, which is where we get our speed from. I remember some years ago, I was studying, um, I was reading a Sports Illustrated magazine, and the article was entitled, Overrated and Underrated. And one of the parts was overrated and underrated body parts for athletes. Overrated. Biceps and pecs. So, oh, all the bodybuilders and those people that are real strong, they want those big biceps and those pecs. Way overrated. Great athletes don't have big biceps and big pecs. Underrated? Check out every great athlete. The core is where their strength is. Those are where the biggest muscle groups of the whole body are. It's those who can use those big muscles that are the superior athletes. This is the underrated part of the body. And then it gets down to the legs. The legs, of course, are made of iron, but that iron is mixed together with clay, which makes it very unstable. Well, the head is of gold, the arms and the chest of silver, the, the core is made of, of bronze, and the legs of iron and clay. In terms of weight, gold is about twice as heavy as silver, which is heavier than bronze, which is heavier than iron, which is way heavier than clay. Gold is far more valuable than silver, which is more valuable than bronze, that is more valuable than iron, that is more valuable than clay. But gold is weaker than silver, which is weaker than bronze, which is weaker than iron, unless it's mixed with clay. And then it's extremely vulnerable. And so that's just what you, you see by observation. So this is the, the dream. But now into the dream enters a stone. And this stone comes in like an asteroid. And it hits the base of the statue because the base is very vulnerable. Besides, it's top heavy. The heaviest part is the head. So this thing will fall in an instant because the feet are vulnerable and the head is really heavy. And the rock hits the feet, the feet crumble, the whole statue falls, topples over, and now this little stone grows and grows and grows until it takes over the whole world and lasts forever. There's his dream. Okay, <laughs> cool. 
Nebuchadnezzar is impressed because he had forgotten what his dream was, and now Daniel had reminded him of his dream, and he knows it's correct. Now it comes back to him. S some years ago, I, um, I, a couple of, not many years ago, I, I, I came across this book. It's called The Great Evangelical Recession. It was written in 2013. And it's written by a man named John Dickerson, and he was a pa he's a pastor, but before he was a pastor, he was a journalist, and his journalism specialty was statistics. And he's simply looking at charts and graphs. And so he wrote this. The findings in this book are based on fact, not hunch. So in other words, he doesn't claim to be a prophet, but he says, when I look at the numbers, I can absolutely tell you what's going to happen in the future to the American church. I can tell you without question. And he says these are the six things that will happen. His first word, he has six words. His first word is inflated. He said if you look at any news article that especially we Christians write, the number of Christians they will mention are massively inflated. Why? Churches love numbers. And many churches have on their church rolls members that have been dead for decades. But we like them on the rolls. Why? 1,900 people attend our church. There are 200 that show up. But 1,900, 90% of them are dead. But we love their statistics. The numbers are greatly inflated. Many times larger than the real numbers. Number two, hated. So there was a time when evangelicals in our culture were a, a, a very good, kind people. People liked us. But now that's shifting radically. He cites a poll of university professors of over a thousand, asking them which groups they're most afraid of. Very few are afraid of Jewish people. Only 20% are afraid of Muslims. More than 50% are afraid of evangelicals. These are university professors. Very intelligent, well-educated people. We're the most feared group in America. That's new. Number three, dividing. He says, because of our immersion into politics, the evangelical movement is hopelessly divided and will never come back again. That's sad. Number four, we're bankrupt. Because the church today in America is largely built on the financial back of baby boomers, that's me, who are going into retirement at the rate of 10,000 per day, the church is going to go bankrupt we're the major givers to the church and as you know you younger people you've got huge college debt we didn't have college debt and mortgages are enormous we don't have a lot of money available it's a different world number five bleeding there are more and more people both young and old who have stopped going to church anymore the, the ranks of the unchurched are growing astronomically and number six sputtering in spite of what you might think, there are very few new people who are trusting Jesus Christ as their Savior. That's why Becky said to us, we need to pray. And like Kayleen, we need to pray that God would bring his good news to more and more people. This is a man who says, this is the future. And remember, he said, this is not my hunch. These are what the facts tell us. What are you going to do about it? Well, he gives in his last half of the book six things that we can do based on each one of those, and I'm not going to tell you what they are. Maybe you'll find the book, and you will do it yourself. But here's a person saying, I know what's happening in the future. 
2020 foresight. It's given to us. What will we do? Daniel now has given 2020 foresight to the king because that was the reason that God gave this dream to the king. And now Daniel is going to interpret it. Daniel says, the four parts of that statue that you have seen, O king, are four kingdoms. Here's what he says. You, speaking of Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. Whew, like that. Can you imagine Nebuchadnezzar's argument? You're the head of gold. You got the right one, baby. It's me, head of gold. Now, what's, what, would, what would happen if you were told that? You're the head of gold. It'll go to your head. And guess what it did to Nebuchadnezzar? Went to his head. He becomes an arrogant fool. And you know what God has to do with Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar is going to slip into years of mental illness because God loves this dear man. And arrogance is one of the things that will keep you out of the kingdom of heaven. And God dearly loves this man who has a head of gold. And so God's going to let this guy go down real low until he comes to see that the God of heaven is the true God. I think there's every indication in scripture that one day in heaven, Nebuchadnezzar will be there. But he won't have a head of gold. <laughs> Jesus has the head of gold. You are the head of gold. Here's what he says. This was the dream, and now we, that's God, will interpret it to the king. You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar is the greatest and most powerful leader of the most powerful, one of the most powerful countries in the history of the world. They, they say that the city of Babylon at the time of Nebuchadnezzar was unlike any city that has ever been built in the history of the world. It was incredibly beautiful. The, one of the seven wonders of the world, the hanging gardens of Babylon were there. I've seen the Ishtar gates. They're in the, 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 the um, Pergamum Museum in Berlin. They're incredibly beautiful to this day. They're the very, someone came up to me after the first service and said, do you mean they've got the real gates? Yes, the very ones Daniel saw. Exactly what he saw are in Berlin today. They're so beautiful. They're full of like, like, a, like a, a, um, dinosaurs and uh, lions, three-dimensional, the gates. You can't believe how beautiful they are. We know they're there today. It was one of the most beautiful cities in the world, and Nebuchadnezzar was the greatest ruler of the Babylonian kingdom. He was the head of gold. The Babylonian empire was large. You see the Ishtar gates? Those are present right now in Babylon. They have both, the smaller and the larger. The smaller ones are erected. The bigger ones are in storage there in the Pergamon Museum in Berlin, on Museum Island there. Babylon, the greatest city, one of the greatest, if not the greatest city in the world. But the last leader of the Babylonian Empire was a real nutcase named Belshazzar. He was a moral mess. He was not the head of gold. And so the kingdom only lasted about... 100 years, but had a pretty wide sweep. This is the Babylonian kingdom. After you, another kingdom will arise inferior to yours. Now, interestingly, this was the, the one that was part of, of silver. 
That's the chest and the arms, two arms. This kingdom would actually be a kingdom with two parts, the Medes and the Persians, present-day Iran. This is the Persian kingdom. And it lasted about 200 years. It's the Medo-Persian Empire. And, and look at the, the, the sweep, the size of it, geographically. Very, very large. And I don't remember exactly. I think this is the 13th largest empire in the world in terms of geographical sweep. But I think it's the largest empire in the world in terms of the number of people, the percentage of people in the world's population that it controlled, 40 plus percent. So it was an enormously powerful kingdom that began with the rule of Cyrus the Great. And this is where under, Bel uh, under Darius that Daniel was put into the lion's den under the Medo-Persian Empire. And look at the sweep of this one, huge. Then, next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Of course, this is the part where these muscles that enable us to run fast are located. And this was the empire that's conquered the world with incredible speed because of the work of Alexander the Great. Uh-oh, I went to, got the wrong thing up there. Alexander the Great conquered the world with lightning speed, but died as a young man. And when he died, his, his, um, his generals took over his kingdom. But the spread of the Greek kingdom went for 300 years. And it was a powerful kingdom, changing the language and the culture of the whole world. That's why in Jesus' day, Greek was the language of the people, not Latin, even though it was controlled by the Roman Empire. And then came the fourth empire. The fourth empire, it said this, finally, there will come a fourth kingdom, strong as iron. For iron breaks and smashes everything, and as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw the iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. So now the fourth kingdom is a kingdom that's a composite of iron and clay. And this kingdom, the Roman Empire, lasted for 400 years, the Babylonian about 100 years, the Medo-Persian about 200 years, the Greek kingdom about, or the Hellenists about 300 years, and the Roman Empire four to 500 years. Militarily, it was the most powerful of all the kingdoms, but morally, it was probably the most bankrupt of all the kingdoms. And so it was a mixture of military strength and moral bankruptcy. But there's a fifth kingdom. The fifth kingdom is um, <clears throat> a kingdom that he's going to now introduce from outside, of the, outside this statue. But first, some principles regarding the kingdoms of this world. As Daniel interprets the, 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 the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, first of all, great kingdoms have certain features in common. They have at least one great leader. They have military might. They accumulate wealth. They have some means to pacify the people in their realm and rule. And they are able to accomplish that. But all kingdoms, without exception, have feet of clay. They may be top-heavy. They they're all destroyed. No kingdom lasts for very long. The Roman is the, is the longest we have. 
And that's why we have what's called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, because of the Roman Empire, under which Jesus lived when he was here. All kingdoms are vulnerable, and eventually all of them will fall. But there's another kingdom. Now he introduces the fifth kingdom. This one does not get crushed. It lasts forever. In the time of those kings, that's the kings of the Roman Empire, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. You see, this one doesn't come from earth. It comes from God. It doesn't, it's not destroyed or crushed. It will last forever. Nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. 2020 foresight. He said, here's the coming. The kingdom is going to come, and it's going to grow, starting like a stone, but become a great rock. This is a kingdom that will not be made by human hands. It will be a kingdom made by God. It will have a decisive entrance into the kingdom of this world. It will introduce a totally new world order, if you want to use those words. Its power will be unstoppable. Its scope will be universal. And its length, eternal. Unlike any other kingdom that we would construct. Because it's based on a stone. Throughout the Bible, Jesus, or the Messiah, is pictured as a stone. A stone that the builders, the ones who should be building God's eternal kingdom, have rejected. But this stone will become the cornerstone and the capstone. And that stone that the builders have rejected is the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, God is building a kingdom that's unlike any of the kingdoms of this world. It is the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. After Daniel tells the king his dream and interprets it, the king goes nuts. The king, remember, this is the greatest person on earth, probably in the top 10 leaders who have ever existed on planet earth. What did he do? He falls in front of a 16-year-old Jewish slave. Can you imagine? and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all of its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. 2020 foresight. So what? <laughs> One of the lessons that we have to take home is, okay, so what? Why did God give us this passage of scripture? Interesting, nice, cool. So what? Let me give you a few so what's. Number one, the first lesson we should derive from this text of scripture is that God is actively seeking Nebuchadnezzar. It is God who gave Nebuchadnezzar this dream. It is God who put Daniel into Nebuchadnezzar's life. It is God who shook this guy up. First of all, Nebuchadnezzar established a, 
an arrogant head. But God, as we see throughout the book of Daniel, is going to humble this king and eventually bring this king into God's kingdom. Don't give up on anybody. No matter how arrogant they may seem to be, no matter how far from God's reach you may think they are, the hounder's heaven is after people because he loves us, all of us, and everybody you've ever seen. That's the first lesson. Second lesson is this. If, in fact, as we know now, living in 2017, that Daniel's explanation of the four kingdoms is absolutely perfect, there's not one error in it. And as we go on through the book, he's going to make prophecies so incredibly specific that many critics of the Bible say, this is not prophecy, this is history, because it's way too accurate. But toward the end in the Roman period, we know that the Bible was written way before the Roman period took place. And he depicts that one perfectly as well. So if God was able to, to tell Daniel what the future was with 100% accuracy, why should we not think that God can tell us that he's not telling us the future about his kingdom with 100% accuracy? There is a kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ that will last forever and ever. And guess what? He wins. We're on the winning side. Why would we cave into the kingdoms of this world when our God wins? If, his, if we know absolutely from history that hindsight is 2020, why would we not expect that God's foresight would be 2020 as well? Thirdly, in which kingdom are you investing your life? Are you investing your life in kingdoms of this world which are fallible, which will fail? How many? Every single one. You have no exceptions. Why would you invest the major part of your life, your talent, your resources, your money in kingdoms that you know will fail when you can be investing your life, your talent, your money in a kingdom that will last forever and ever? Do you want to know where, you spend your, when you, where you're um, investing your time? I can tell you how you can figure it out. It's very simple. Watch the dashboard of your car. On the dashboard of your car, you'll see little warning lights. From time to time, mine comes on and says, check engine. Now, I haven't done this yet, but I've thought about it. Getting out a hammer and smashing that light. And if I smash that light, guess what? It'll go off. And I'll be in good shape. I can drive however I want. No more check engine light. But you see, the problem is not the light. The light is simply telling me there's something wrong with the engine. If I smash the light, I'm making a big mistake. We are made just like that. The dashboards of our lives are called emotions. When someone has an emotion, you don't say, stop feeling sad. Stop feeling happy. Get rid of those emotions. No, 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 no. The emotions are telling us there's something going on in the engine. You don't, emotions are pretty much uh, neutral, morally neutral. They're warning lights. And so I ask you. Now, of course, this doesn't apply to anyone in, in, in Wyoming, just Colorado people, because we've legalized marijuana and all kinds of things down there. So this doesn't apply to you. But I can't, I can't tell you how many times I've seen our wonderful people of Colorado have way more emotion about politics than they do about anything having to do with God, ever. 
Now, there's nothing wrong with being emotional about politics. There's a lot to make us emotional about these days. But that is not where you should be investing your life. When your emotions go crazy about politics and you don't give one tear about Jesus, you should be looking at the warning lights of your life. Those warning lights are telling you, this is where I, my heart is invested. I've invested my life in the kingdoms of this world. And Jesus said, no, invest your life in the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, which will last forever and ever. People are eternal. The word of God is eternal. Nothing else in this world is eternal. It will all fade away. Put your life in something that's eternal. Not Not that we shouldn't care about the kingdoms of this world. We should, but they will not last. Every one of them is fallible. Every one of them will fall, including ours. But there's a kingdom that will never fail, will never fall. And it's built on a little stone that lived on it, that came to this earth, and was crucified on a cross, and walked out of a grave alive, ascended to heaven, at the right hand of God the Father, And he's building, like a mustard seed, an enormous kingdom that we get to be a part of if we choose. In which kingdom will you invest your life? And if you've invested your life in the kingdom of our Lord, we should live our lives. Thy kingdom come. Please stand with me. And in conclusion, let's pray the Lord's Prayer, which is largely about Christ's kingdom, with sincerity and truth. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed.